The passage comes from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate, and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. Father, we thank you. Uh, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for each other. And we, uh, we thank you for Paul and these words. And I pray that you would speak to us now as you spoke to him by your spirit. Teach us, we pray. Amen. We'll do a quick whistle-stop tour of First Thessalonians. We're near the end of the first letter. Paul began, you'll recognize this if you've seen the Bible Project video that we showed at the very beginning of our series. If you haven't seen that video, it's well worth watching as a sort of recap of what we've been looking at. Paul begins by being thankful, thankful to God and thankful for the faith, hope and love of the Christians in Thessalonica. He looked back to his visit, to their conversion, and uh, how they were transformed from living as people of the world to children of God. That brought with it persecution. It wasn't easy for them to live differently, but Paul was encouraged to hear from Timothy that they hadn't lost heart, that they were keeping going. He prayed that they would love one another more and more and live holy lives while waiting for Jesus to return. Then he fleshed out what that life, that waiting, might look like in practice. He talked about sexual purity. He talked about working hard and serving one another. And then he looked ahead, as we saw last week, to Jesus' return, when we will be reunited with our sisters and brothers who've fallen asleep in the Lord. Paul knew that it's so easy for pressure from outside the church, pressure from persecution, pressure to conform to the world's way, pressure to follow the desires of our hearts. It's so easy for those pressures to knock Christians off course. Paul knew that. And so he reminded them of the truth. A significant portion of the letter is Paul saying, remember what I taught you when I was with you? Well, here it is again. He wanted to encourage them. That word appears several times in the letter. To encourage them, to build them up in the truth to make sure that their foundation is firm. The Bible Project sums up the letter like this. Following Jesus produces a countercultural and holy way of life 
that responds to hostility with love and generosity and that is motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus. The Thessalonians, they were doing okay, they were doing well in many ways, but they were also a bit wobbly on a couple of things. And so in his pastoral response, Paul does two things. He reminds them of the truth, truth in the scriptures, the Old Testament as we have it now, and truth in Jesus' teaching. And he encourages them, second, to live as who they are, God's children. And we see both of those in this passage, which is about the day of the Lord and what it means to live in it. Jess and I were burgled in Amington uh, four years ago. I'd left a downstairs window open a, a crack, and someone opportunistic saw it was open, opened it wide, and climbed in. She took my drill, although she took my old drill, not the new one that was next to it, and much more expensive. She took an extension lead, my wallet, and Jess's car keys, and uh, she went through every drawer and cupboard in the kitchen, so they were all wide open when we came down in the morning, looking for cash, the police said and then left through the front door, helpfully leaving it wide open. She didn't take Jess's car, but she opened it and went through it and found Jess's purse and took her bank card. Then she tossed my wallet in our hedge, because there was nothing in it. (laughs) Jess had seen to that. Um, (laughs) She's not here. Actually, she might be watching. Hi, darling. We found it several months later in the hedge. Then she walked down the road to the Tesco Express and used Jess's bank card in full view of the CCTV cameras, which meant she got arrested two days later and then released because they had no evidence. (laughs) Jess and I were asleep upstairs the whole time. And the first we knew about it was when Jess woke up and she checked her phone, as we do, because we're young people. And uh, she saw some messages about her card being blocked from the bank. And she said, oh, that card's in my car. So, of course, we thought her car had been stolen. So I got up, ran downstairs, saw the front door was wide open, thought, oh, my goodness, what's happened? Heart pounding, confused, angry, upset, you name it. We rang the police. They actually turned up within an hour. It was amazing. And we thanked God that actually they didn't take anything of any value because she just wanted cash for drugs. Losing stuff was annoying, but the worst part was knowing that someone had been in our house while we were asleep. Paul says in verse 2, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Paul was actually drawing there on Jesus' teaching from Matthew 24. Jesus says this, keep watch, because you do not know on what day the Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch, I would have done, and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. People have wasted so much time trying to figure out when Jesus is coming back. I don't really understand why, because Jesus is very clear. You do not know on what day. In fact, he says it it in Mark 13. He didn't know when he was coming back. He says only the Father in Mark 13. So I don't know what chance we've got. Like a thief coming in the night, we don't know when Jesus will return. It will be sudden. But for God's people, it won't be a surprise. 
That's the point of the next metaphor. There's quite a few metaphors in this place. It's one of Paul's favorite things, mixing metaphors. Well, the thief isn't pregnant, <laughs> as far as I know, um, but uh, that it's, uh, Jesus' return will be like labor pains, he says in verse 3. Sudden, perhaps, but I've never been pregnant, but I imagine it's not a surprise. <laughs> You're kind of expecting that at some point you will have labor pains. So the day of the Lord is inevitable, like the labor pains, but unpredictable, like the thief. But what is the day of the Lord? Well, Jesus taught about the thief in the night, and then the prophets often taught about the day of the Lord. So Paul's bringing together here the scriptures from the Old Testament with Jesus' teaching. The day of the Lord is Judgment Day. Any Terminator fans out there? No? Oh, you miserable lot. Yeah, thanks, Annie. <laughs> Judgment Day only with fewer Arnold Schwarzenegger-shaped assassin robots. And the day of the Lord is described first in Amos, the book of Amos, chapter 5. It's the day when God will right all wrongs. There's a famous verse from Amos, chapter 5. You may have heard it. God says, let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. Recognize those words? They're in a hymn, I'm sure. That's Amos 5.24. That's great! Unless you're responsible for unrighteousness or injustice, then, Amos says, it will be a day of darkness, not light. Amos prophesied against those who felt complacent and secure, who observed festivals and made sacrifices but didn't worship God with all their hearts. In fact, the people of his day even worshipped idols, he says. In Paul's day, peace and safety was called the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, peace at the end of a sword. As long as you towed the line with the Romans, there was no danger of war or invasion because the Romans kept you safe. And with that, for a city like Thessalonica, came plenty of indulgence and self-confidence. But as Amos prophesied, so Paul says in verse 3, destruction will come on them suddenly. Now, passages in the Bible that talk about judgment and destruction are probably some of the most difficult. Some people are tempted to ignore them or dismiss those passages as sort of outdated and outmoded. The problem is, the Bible says that God both judges sin and loves sinners. It's not a question of cruelty as if God is like this little boy with a magnifying glass trying to kill the ants on an anthill. That's not what it's like at all. His anger and his wrath are not like ours. They are not guided by emotion. They are guided by justice. And then you have things like this in Ezekiel chapter 33. God says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, God says. Then in Jeremiah 14, another passage full of God pronouncing judgment on his faithless people in the middle of it describes God weeping. God says, I will pour out on them the calamity they deserve. And in the next verse, let my eyes overflow with tears night and day without ceasing. For the virgin daughter, my people, has suffered a grievous wound, a crushing blow. From the start to the finish of the Bible, there's this tension, and it holds both together. We can't use one to rub out the other. 
Ultimately, of course, they meet on the cross. Jesus died so all who do turn, as Ezekiel challenged them to, so that all who do turn receive forgiveness and life from God. If you find it difficult to read passages like this one that talk about God's judgment or his vengeance or punishment, I encourage you to sit with them, to pray through them, to talk to another, a, a trusted Christian friend, to me if you want to, I'd be very happy to do that. But please don't simply dismiss them. When we start dismissing bits of the Bible that we don't like or that we think we disagree with, what we end up doing is building and worshipping a fake God that's actually in our image, whereas we are made in his image. And a fake God will never satisfy. Instead, we need to listen to what God says about himself and about us and about sin. Because rebelling against God, worshipping things that are not God, living my way, not God's way, these things have consequences. But, this is where it's great if you have a Bible in front of you, because you'll know that the next word in the passage is but. It's one of those words in the Bible like therefore, that's like a sort of a key word. When you see that, you know something important is happening, especially when it's at the beginning of a sentence. But you, verse 4, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you. Now, I really don't like surprises. Not at all. (laughs) As an April baby, my birthday's often in Easter holidays. And uh, for my 21st, my parents very lovingly and kindly organized uh, a short holiday in northern France after Easter, staying in a cottage owned by the vicar of the next-door parish, who went on to much greater things in Canterbury. Only they told me we were going to Paris. And I was really excited. I'd never been to Paris. I was really looking forward to going to Paris. So as we drove past Paris on the motorway from Calais, I was like, isn't that Paris? Anyway, we arrived at this cottage, we unloaded our stuff, and we headed out to the supermarket to buy some food. And uh, I'm afraid to say, friends, that I was a little bit grumpy. Because I've been really looking forward to going to Paris. Anyway, at the supermarket, I was walking down the aisle, and I ran into one of my school friends. And then another one, and then another one, and I said to them, I said, what are you doing here? And they said, we've come to stay with you. And I said, no, you haven't, and stormed off and had a bit of a breakdown. It took me, it took me hours to calm down because I was so shocked and upset that we were in a different country. I did apologize to them all, and mum promised me she'd never do a surprise party for me ever again. I was in the dark about what was going on, so it was a complete surprise to run into a friend in another country. (laughs) Paul's teaching, like Jesus's on this topic, was given so God's people would not be in the dark, but would know and have confidence in the future. But there's actually a much more profound way in which God's people are not in the dark, are not in darkness, Paul says in verse 4. Let's have a read. We'll start at verse 5. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, 
But let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. Paul does two things here. The two things I highlighted at the beginning um, of the talk, he reminds them of the truth and he encourages them to live as who they are. There's a contrast between light and dark, between night and day, between being awake and asleep, between sober and drunk. And it's about who we are and how we live as we wait for Jesus to return. Paul contrasts two kingdoms. We have the kingdom of this world and we have the kingdom of God. To this world belong things like night, darkness, asleep, drunk, those words. To God's kingdom belong words like day, light, awake, sober. Paul says God's people are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. And this is a central part of the Bible's teaching about who we are as God's people. Some examples, 2 Corinthians 5. In Jesus, we are a new creation. John 3, we are born again. Romans 6, we are crucified, killed, and made alive again in Jesus. Ephesians 5, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. God's people do not belong to the kingdom of this world anymore with all its darkness. We belong to the kingdom of God. We have passed from darkness into light. We are children of the light and children of the day. Except God's kingdom is already here, but not yet in full. Jesus put it like this at the beginning of his ministry. He said, the kingdom of God has come near. And then he told us to pray for the kingdom to come. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom is breaking in to this world. And God's people live in the overlap between this world and God's kingdom. We belong to the kingdom of God. We are children of the light and children of the day, but we are still in this world with all its challenges and with all its temptations. That is why so often Paul tells us to be, to become, to behave as the people we already are. It's not about earning anything. It's about living out what we already have. We are children of the day, he says in verse 6. So let us be awake. Because that's what you do in the day. And again in verse 7, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober. Let us live, not like we belong to the world, but like we belong to the kingdom of God, Paul says. Because that is who we are, children of the light. Let us be and become who we are. That's not very easy to do. I suspect that's one reason why Paul often uses this language of a soldier. It happens two or three times in his letters. He rather unhelpfully attributes different attributes to the different things, so don't put too much store in those. The whole point is what we put on. We put on the things of God, uh, which protect us. Verse 8, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. We fight. We fight against the devil's lies. That's why Paul reminds them of the truth. We fight against the world's temptations. That's why Paul encourages them to keep going. And we fight against our own desires. That's why Paul encourages them to live in holiness. 
sometimes, if you're like me, you will look and feel like someone from the kingdom of God, like a child of the light. Sometimes the darkness and the night will threaten to overwhelm us. We're not going to win every single skirmish this side of heaven. But the battle is already won. The victory is already assured, and the future of God's people is certain. Have a look with me at verse 9. For God did not appoint or choose us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Everything turns on the cross. Do you notice, Paul's not talking about the cross here. He's talking about the future. But even here, he wants to bring it back to the cross because the cross is at the center, the crux of history. On the cross, Jesus died for us, he said. That word means on our behalf. From the rest of the Bible, we know he died in our place, doing what we could not do, defeating evil and death, (laughs) killing sin dead in his own body, paying the price, willingly suffering the punishment we deserve so we can have the life. All that comes elsewhere in the Bible. Here, Paul's point is really, really simple. Who we are and where we're going is based on something that has already happened and cannot be undone. Jesus died for us. He's already done it. The victory has already been won. Jesus died for us so that we may live together with him. So the life of God's people depends not on our abilities or, our, or on where we're born or our performance or our emotions, which are fleeting. It depends on God's choice and on what God has already done. That is why we can sing, as we did last week, these words. On that day, we will see you shining brighter than the sun. On that day, we will know you as we lift our voices one. Hallelujah, what a day it will be. For at home with you, my joy is complete. As I run into your arms, open wide, I will see my Father who is waiting for me. God's kingdom is at hand. It is breaking into the here and now and will one day come in full and we will see Jesus face to face. Life in the overlap is messy and complicated and difficult, but the future is assured in Jesus. So while we wait for that day, when God's kingdom comes in full, let us be ready. Let us live as who we are, as children of the light and children of the day, as Paul says in verse 5. While we wait for Jesus to return to bring us home, let us encourage one another. This passage ends with that word encourage. Again, let us encourage one another and build each other up in the truth, in living out who we are, building our foundation on the solid rock of God's word, trusting in God's choice and what Jesus has done and living in the power of the Spirit. Friends, that's what it means to live in the light of the gospel. And I pray that we might do that more and more. Amen.